0: Well, good morning, Harvest. So great to be with you guys today. Um, so fired up. Oh, by the way, uh, don't give these to me. I don't know what's gonna. I guess I don't belong here. I don't know. So find someone else who belongs here. Um, but uh, so incredibly uh, privileged to be here. Uh, Kai, thanks for helping me bring the word today, bro. Uh, got an awesome thing going here, man. If everything tanks in Rochester and you need another campus pastor, just give me a call. All right. <laughs> Uh, but man, we've been in Muskoka for the past week, since Sunday, um, and uh, we'll be here through Wednesday. And it is, you guys have just got such a beautiful gift, a beautiful place to be, uh, and a beautiful place to shed the light of Christ, to say, if you think this is great, let, let me point you to the God who made it. Amen? Amen. And uh, so with that, um, oh, before I pray, I want to introduce you to my family. My family's not here today. Um, I had to take my my younger son, Dominic, now we call it the ER in New York, but you guys call it a merge, which me and my wife thought was really fun, a merge, Um, but he's okay, Um, he's just got some stomach issues that that were really hurting him, and so, uh, but he's swimming in the river right now, but we didn't know what today was going to be like, so they're not here, but that's my wife, Shannon, uh, and uh, we've been married for 15 years, uh, and, uh, and then that's my oldest son, Owen, in the life vest, Dominic, so that Owen's 11, Dominic's 10, uh, Lily is 8, and then Eden is 6, and then that should have been dinner, but my girl said no, so, <laughs> so we didn't, uh, but that's my crew, uh, and, uh, if you could just keep Dominic in your prayers, just as he, as he recovers, and, uh, give us, give us and the doctors wisdom to figure out what's going on there, so, um, Why don't you join me in prayer, and then we'll open up God's Word together, all right? Father, we thank you so much uh, for giving us an opportunity to open up your Word today. God, we are um, thankful uh, that you have revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's Him that we lift up. It's Him that we praise. It's Him that we seek. It's Him that we desire to meet face-to-face this morning, whom we already have. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would just continue that now as we open up your Word. Father, we thank you for the work that you've done in this place already as your spirit has moved in our hearts. Now, Father, we open ourselves up to the work that your Holy Spirit wants to do through your word in us. God, I pray that your spirit would come and take your word and uh, open us up. Um, as you promised in your word, as, uh, as your word is a, a sword, a double-edged sword, and it separates between bone and marrow and soul and spirit, uh, so that we would all lie naked before you Uh, to whom we must give an account. So God, I pray that your conviction would fall, but not condemnation. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to change what needs to change. Uh, Father, I pray that you would bring hope where hope needs to be had. Um, And uh, God, I I just pray for myself right now as your servant, that you would use me to speak your word with boldness, with clarity, with intentionality. And uh, Father, I pray that no one would go from this place remembering me, uh, but that people will go from this place remembering Jesus Christ, the one that we worship. So, Father, we just uh, ask you to move in this place this morning. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you got your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Peter. Uh, And uh, I think our ushers have some Bibles. If you don't have one, just go ahead and raise your hand, and uh, they will hand you a Bible. And uh, I got one of those, too, so that's great. I left my preaching Bible at home. Oops. Um, So thanks for your generosity, guys. Uh, so 1 Peter chapter uh, 1 and chapter 2, and it's on page 588 in one of these Bibles. And uh, today, our, our message is called Our Family Code. Our Family Code. We are part of one family, aren't we? Um, not just because we share the same name as Harvest, um, and not just because we're both going to be shoveling the same snow in a few months. Sorry, I had to say it. Had to bring it up. I know. That's it. That's all. I, I'm done. I'm done. I'm um, done. And they're going to boo me off the stage, I know. But we're part of the family of God. We're part of the born-again covenant family of God. Whether you find yourself in Muskoka, Canada, or in Rochester, New York, or in South America, or all the way across the ocean in Chad or Australia, no matter where it is, we are together uh, because we worship the name of Jesus. And and we're not just brought together uh, because we have common beliefs. We're not just brought together because we have common practices, but we are brought together because we are part of one family, and we share the same Father. We share the same Savior. We share the same Lord and brother, Jesus Christ. And have you ever been in a, the home of a family that you're just like, man, I really want to be a part of that family? You ever been there? Have you, you ever been, maybe you came in for dinner, and like you just felt the joy, right? The joy just kind of oozed out of everything, and, and you looked, you said, man, when I have a family, I want to be like them when I grow. When I have kids, I want it to be like this. And let me ask you, do you think that family got to be the way that it is by accident? No, they didn't. The best families are families that live with intentionality. The families that either say in a written way or just in an unwritten way that say, this is who we are, and so this is the way that we're going to live. This is our code. And so when people come in, They could say, man, I wish that our family was like this. And as the Apostle Peter writes to um, his audience, which is spread throughout um, the world, he's writing to them to say, you are the family of God. And the way in which you live ought to invite other people to desire to live the way in which God has called us to live. That the way that you live ought to reflect the Savior." Who saved you by his death and resurrection. The way that you live ought to show the love of that savior. The way that you live ought to be a savory taste in this world. So that people say, I want some more. Where did you get that? And we could say, Let me introduce you to our dad, right? You see, as Peter <clears throat> writes to his audience, I think that what we have <clears throat> in First Peter chapter one is something. Of a family code. And I want you to listen to this. This is kind of where we're headed today. That when we live by God's family code, we become the family that God intended us to be, welcoming to the world and loving towards one another. That when we live by God's family code, we become the family that God intended us to be, welcoming to the world and loving one another. And this is a family. That only lives with intentionality. So, do not you join me and read from First uh, Peter chapter one, verse twenty-two, all the way down through chapter two, verse three? And I want you to note how many times like family type language comes up. You ready to read with me? All right. Well, let's read. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love—that's the first one. <laughs> Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, there's another one, not of perishable seed, there's a third one, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, there's the next, long for the pure spiritual milk, there's the fifth one, that by it you may grow up, there's the sixth, into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now before we actually dive into our text this morning. Let me set the context for you a little bit. You can't just approach the Bible to rip it open and just read it and apply it any way that you want. You've got to know why the author wrote it, who he was writing to, what his purpose was, what his intent was. You see, the Apostle Peter is writing to um, a general and wide audience, and he's telling them, uh, if you actually look at chapter 2, verse 12, I think, uh, I think that this is... Um, this is where, where, where Peter wants to, wants to point people. Actually, starting in verse 9, chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light see, this is, where, this is like the crux of the, of the entire book where Peter is pointing everybody to that the way that you live brings glory to God the Father so that, that you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you so that people can watch and people can hear and people can also share the same Father when they put their faith in Jesus Christ. For once you were not a people, but, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that's where Peter is driving everything in this book. Now, in the first 12 verses, he talks about the glories of our salvation. He says in chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And so he spends the first 12 verses talking about our glorious salvation. He talks about how God planned it and and how how Christ purchased it and how how he proclaimed it before Christ ever came to the prophet, saying, this is is Jesus Christ this is the one who came to save you and this is how God did it because God loves you and he is bringing you into an eternal relationship with him that is imperishable that means it can never be destroyed amen it can never be destroyed and so he goes on from there and he says, "Because this is true, look at verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action so because all this is true because you've been given salvation in Jesus Christ, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ Now as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy, for I." am holy and so he says now that you know what your salvation is now that you know your salvation is certain here's what i want you to do with it i want you to live in the way that is holy towards the lord that word holy it literally means <clears throat> it literally means to be set apart it means to be set aside and totally reserved for god's purposes and it includes this idea of moral purity and he's saying that, that since you have now been saved, your job is to represent Jesus Christ and to represent the Father by being holy as he is holy. Holiness is found in obedience. Obedience is always our first and our best option. Now you see, Christ purchased our holiness on the cross so that, that when our sins were put on him and by faith his righteousness was given to us, when God looks down on you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness because truly all that we brought to the table for our salvation was the was the sin that made it necessary, right? That's a quote by Tim Keller. But what God sees is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he says now you need to go and live in that light in a constant growing way. And so that's the, the, the background for this book. And so now getting into our text in verse 22, he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so if we're gonna live by the family code that God has given to us and to become the family that God intends us to be, welcoming to the world and loving towards one another, the first thing we need to understand is that we are, we are to be holy for one another. Holy for one another. What in the world does that mean? One, well, glad you asked. He says, as having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, we already said that that this holiness, this purification was already purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. And so when he says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, what's he saying? Is this some sort of works-based righteousness? Is he saying this is some sort of works-based holiness, some sort of works-based purification? No, 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 absolutely not. This is that continued work of holiness that happens in our lives. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that is, as we continue to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, Christ, our hearts become more and more holy just like his. Because the fact of the matter is this, that we are going to continue to fight and battle against our sin until we are with him in glory. And everyone said, oh, oh we still got to fight this? Yep, every day with all of our heart, soul, and strength, right? And so he says that our hearts are going to continue to be purified by your obedience to the truth for What's our holiness for? Well, sometimes the world, and, and, and many times Christians, when they hear the word holiness, they think of a guy like this. Go to and put the, there you go. High holiness, right? That the, the less like the world I become, the more elevated I become in everybody else's eyes, and I'm literally higher above everybody else. You could probably finish a statement, man, I can't stand that guy because he is so holier than Right, what does that mean? It means that they live out their holiness, live out their otherness, live out their separation from the world in a way that makes them just seem like, hey, I'm above you and I have nothing to do with you, so why don't you just go ahead and carry me around because that's truly how I am. But see, the world gets that wrong. This is false religion. Where should our holiness lead? You can take that down. Our holiness ought to lead to one place: to a sincere, brotherly love. Loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, we pursue holiness for the sake of one another. We pursue holiness so that we look like the Lord, so we can show people the Lord, but we also pursue holiness because this is the path to love. Let me ask you, who's the most holy man that ever lived? It would be Jesus Christ, right? He's our example of holiness. Maybe you've been around this guy in the church that's like, you know what, man, I'm just... I mean, I, I don't go to those movies anymore. I don't drink those things anymore. I don't eat like that anymore. I don't do this anymore. And then they're all like snooty and looking down at you because you still struggle with some things. And this guy somehow figured out all the mysteries of life and didn't struggle with sin anymore, right? You met that guy? If you haven't, you're probably that guy. But our holiness ought not to lead to a place that says that I'm better than you, but our holiness ought to lead to a place where we're on our knees serving you. You see, because what did holiness lead to for Jesus? Then on the night he was betrayed and on the night before he, he gave his life up for you, what was he doing? He was washing feet. That the love that Jesus had was a love that, that He stripped away His clothes, just like He stripped Himself of so much of His glory and power, and He put on flesh like you and me. And He put on the servant's robe. And He had a bowl of water. And He had a towel. And he washed the feet of the disciples, all, all those feet that would soon run away from the cross. And the feet that would run to exchange 30 pieces of silver for our Savior, he washed those feet too. Look what Peter says. <clears throat> Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, growing in holiness for a sincere brotherly love. That word sincere means that it's unhypocritical. It means that there's no pretense about it. It means that that you're not serving somebody else because of what you can get out of it. It means that you're not serving somebody else because you want people to think that you are like him, that you're not serving somebody else because you want people to think that, man, you're just such a good Christian, but you're serving somebody else. You are loving your brother With a love, because love always puts everybody else in front of yourself, doesn't it? That's what love does. That Christ is the epitome of love and that he put us in front of himself by giving himself on the cross. And so our love, this brotherly love, this love that God calls us in our family code, let your holiness lead to a love that says, you're greater than me. And I believe it. A hypocritical love says, I'm gonna serve you, but I don't like it. But a pure love says, I'm gonna serve you because Christ served me and I love you. And look what else it says about this love. It says that this love ought to be earnest and from, again, a pure heart, from a holy heart. So from a heart that's growing in purity, from a heart that's growing in holiness, it ought to be an earnest love. Now, this word earnest is used a few times in the New Testament, but the the one that comes to mind for me is when Jesus is praying in the garden. it says he was praying earnestly, that he was praying so hard that Drops of blood were coming down as sweat. That's the kind of earnesty that we ought to be loving and serving one another. Because, well, what did Jesus say when they came to him and they said, "Jesus, what's the greatest command?" Well, to love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, to to love your neighbor as yourself. Paul. Confirm this in, in uh, G- uh, Galatians chapter 5, where he says this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, wait. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. Paul wasn't a mathematician, okay? That's seven words. Now, would you understand what he's saying, right? Everything. That as we grow in holiness, we grow in love. As you grow in obedience to the Lord, we grow in love. Or what does it look like? Well, think about some of the commands that, that, that the Lord gave us in the Ten Commandments. Right? Don't, don't envy your neighbor's wife. And Jesus said that in a different way. Hey, don't, don't lust, because when you lust, you actually commit adultery in your heart. So, men, if we keep ourselves from lusting... Well, yes, that makes us holy before the Lord, but what is the opposite of that? That when we give in to lustful temptations with other women, what does that do? Does that increase or decrease our love for that person? Well, it decreases it because we begin to look at that woman as a no longer as somebody made in the image of God, but somebody that's made for me to fulfill my desires. And we no longer... Look at them as somebody that we can serve, but as somebody that can serve me. And how does that bring its way into your marriage? Well, now you no longer look at your wife. It it, it can lead to you looking at your wife as an object of your lust instead of an object as your of your love. Somebody to serve you instead of. I'm sorry, looking at them as somebody to serve you instead of you serving them. Do you see? How, how sinning is not just something that, that stands in the way between you and the Lord, but it stands in the way between you and other people. And you can trace that with any of our sins. And so when we choose holiness, we choose it so, because we love the Lord but also because we love one another. And a lack of pursuit of holiness, it brings an impediment to our our relationship with God. Now it's now, we're not going to lose that. We can't lose our salvation. We're safe and secure in Jesus Christ. We have an imperishable inheritance in Christ like we just read in chapter one. But our prayers are impeded. Our joy is impeded. Our hope is impeded. But also with one another. It ruins our relationship with others. It weakens your witness. It weakens the church. And it weakens the witness to a watching world. I mean, if we are people who are not living in a holy way for the Lord and for each other, why would anybody want to be a part of a group of people that are just utterly selfish? Isn't that what we're trying to run from? Right? Isn't that what we're trying to be saved from? So brothers and sisters, if we are to be this family that is appealing to the world. And we need to be a family that lives in a way that is holy, completely set apart for the Lord so that we can learn to love one another. Second thing is this, we celebrate our heritage. We celebrate our heritage. Look what he says, he continues in verse 23. So since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. So now he's going to talk about our heritage. So we're, we're born, and you got to understand this word for seed, right? We're talking in this context of family. The word for seed is not like hanging hey, in a plant, an apple seed, and an apple's going to grow. It's like, you know, parent seed, okay? Seed that children come from, and it's going to leave it at that. But he says there's two different kinds of a heritage. A heritage that one is going to perish... And one is going to be imperishable. The word perishable means that it's from the earth. It means it's of an earthly quality. And the word imperishable means it's of a heavenly quality, of an indestructible quality. So, me, like I already told you, Capuano is an Italian name, um, and uh, we take pride in our heritage. Now, my great great grandfather, his name was Dominic Joseph Capuano. We came to New York in the early 1900s, and uh, my grandfather was the first one born in America in our family. And, and actually, my son, the one that we brought to emerge, as you say, his name is Dominic Joseph Capuano, right? We celebrate that heritage. And when we get together as a town, I got like 27 grandchildren. Uh, grand, I do not have any grandchildren. <laughs> I got 27 cousins on that side of the family, like, you know, just, just Catholics who, who, who were Catholics in the way they thought about birth control, and, and we had a lot of cousins and stuff. And we get together at our family parties, and there's a lot of pizza and so much, or not pizza, pasta, so much pasta, so much ravioli, and so much cheek kissing, right? Like, just a ton of it. You feel like you're just stepping into the Godfather. It's great. But really, I mean, am going to be honest with you, though. Like, our heritage, we, we, don't, we don't go that far in our heritage. I, I'm what Mike, a comedian, Mike Berbiglia would call an Olive Garden Italian, right? You guys heard that joke? Where, where he says, okay, you know, you, know, you, go, you go to your Italian restaurants, and, and, and all that's Italian about you is your last name. You don't know any language. You look at the menu, and you're like, um, yeah, I think uh, I'm going to go ahead and order the best of and to finish the joke, he says, No, 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 no. You're going to have the pasta fagioli just like everybody else. Now, that's my Italian heritage. We love it. But my great great grandfather, he's dead. I never met him. My grandfather died just before I got married in 2004. Now, my dad, he's still alive, but he'll die. I'm still alive. I'm going to die. Dominic Joseph Capuano, whose namesake came over from Italy, he's going to die. Why do I say that? To be morbid? No, but to say that we're, imper- we're, we're perishable. That if our sight and our focus is on the things of this world, your sight, your sight and your focus are on things that are going to die. And Peter's saying, no, 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 that's not where we come from. But we have been born again. We've been born again, not of perishable seed. That, that we have been, uh, that when, when we died, that when Christ died on the cross, that we died with him. That by faith, our sins were put on Christ and they were nailed to the cross. And we're told in Romans chapter 6 that we died with Christ. And then when Christ was buried, we were buried with Christ. And then when Christ rose from the grave, we were raised from Christ to new life, right? A life that's lived in holiness, a life that's lived in love, that we've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And what is that seed? Through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Forever. Living means that it's alive, means that it's active. Abiding means that it's never going to go away. And this word is a good news that was preached to you. I've been reading through the gospel of Mark in my quiet time with the Lord. And how many times, if you, if you, if you can take a look, how many times it says that Jesus preached. His disciples went to go find him when he was in a desolate place to pray. And they said, hey, everyone's looking for you. And he says, no, 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 I need to go and I need to preach because this is why I came. We preach God's word, right? We, preach the, we unapologetically pro- proclaim the authority of God's word. Kai's a funny dude. He's a great preacher. But if, if Sunday mornings was story time with Kai, like you'd laugh. It'd be a good time. You'd have a lot of fun, but your life wouldn't change. Those words are perishable. My words are perishable. God's word is imperishable. So we celebrate this Heritage. Peter, he takes this passage from Isaiah chapter 40. And I want you to turn there. I want you to turn there. Because the Lord says this. He says in in the Psalms, I have elevated above all else my name and my word. This Bible that we have written by 40 different authors, 66 books written over A period of over 1,500 years, right? Multiple cultures, three different languages, all with one message, the redemption of God's people through Jesus Christ. And we preach that word, but why do we believe it? How many conversations have you had with people that have said, I don't believe that. There's so many contradictions in it. Well, I don't believe that. It's just a book that was thrown together by people. No, no, no. This is a book that was put together by the Lord himself. This is a book that was spoken into existence by the Lord, and we celebrate our heritage. What that means is that by God's word, we point to our dad. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verse 9. Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up and fear not. Say to the city of Judah... Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead them, lead those that are young. And I started in the wrong spot, so we're going to look at verse (laughs) 6. See, I told you, my words are worthless. (laughs) A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? And the Lord responds, all flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. And the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. And surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And who is this God? Look at verse 12. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heaven with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Think of that think of that think of Mount Everest in a scale that the Lord says this is nothing and we die trying to ascend it Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, verse 13, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. We're ramping up for an election down in the states and it's going to be ridiculous. It's going gonna, it's gonna to consume the news, and you guys are probably going to talk about it up here too, right? It's going to consume everything. You guys are going to laugh at us, <laughs> as you should. But think about how much effort is going to be looked into covering what these people say. And the Lord says, compared to me, this is so perishable. Me, I'm imperishable. You Your nation and all of you in it are like the drop of a bucket. Behold, he takes up the coastlands as like fine dust. Lebanon will not suffice for fuel, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing, an emptiness. To whom will you liken God? And what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains? He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who makes princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. This is our God. That the grass withers and the flower fades and our breath will pass from us at one point. That you will soon be buried six feet under and eaten by worms and become dust in your perishable body. But the Lord, the Lord remains forever. And his word his word remains forever. And what does Peter say? He says, "In this word, from the mouth of God, this word is the good news that was preached to you. What is this good news? Look at Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17. it says this: "For I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That, it's the, that the gospel is the power of God. It's not my words. It's not Kai's words. It's not anybody's words that steps up on the stage. But it, the, it is the word of God that is the power to save you. It is the gospel that is the power to save you. Look at uh, what, what the Lord says in the book of Hebrews about his word. He says this, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. James chapter 1 says something very similar when it says this, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so we celebrate our heritage that this is how you and I have been born again, by the eternal word of God, preached to you in the gospel, the revelation of Jesus Christ, died on the cross, rose from the grave, so that you can be saved. That is our heritage. That is what binds us together. And when people come and look at us, we say, the reason we are who we are Is because of our dad. Let me show you who he is. And so if we're going to live this family code so that the world might see that Jesus Christ is Lord and that we might love one another, we are holy for one another, we celebrate our heritage. You can write this down. We love intentionally and we love protectively. We love intentionally and we love protectively. You see, Peter, one of the reasons why I really like him is because he's kind of a spaz and like an ADHD guy like me. See, I popped Ritalin like Pez back in the day. um, Mellowed out a little bit. um, But some would say, Brandon, you still need a little bit more. Probably do. But Peter... He starts talking about holiness. He starts talking about love. And then he just gets so enraptured with the word of God and with the God who wrote it that he just goes nuts for a couple of verses. And he says, all right, all right, all right, let me bring it back. Let me bring it back. And he says, so put away, right? So then he comes back to love. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So he says, I want you to love in earnesty. I want you to love in sincerity but in order to do that, you've got to take these things off. That word put away literally means to take off like clothing. And, and, and because of this verse, this is so weird, but because of this verse and in the first century, they used to baptize people naked. Uh, can I get an amen for not doing that anymore? Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, but they, they, they were like, hey, let's, this is like great imagery here, so let's baptize one another naked to show our old self coming off. It's like, what? No, no thanks. But that's what the word literally means. It means to take off like clothes. And so he says, so in order to love one another, we need to put away these things. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. None of these things are found in love. Malice is this idea that that, that you have this wicked intent for somebody, that you seek to injure one another with your words and actions. I, I showed you the picture of my kids, right? I got an 11-year-old boy. I got a 10-year-old boy. I got an 8-year-old daughter. I got a 6-year-old daughter. Please pray for me. Like sometimes it becomes a war zone in our house. It gets crazy, right? And it's mostly because these kids know how to push one another's buttons, and they know that if they could just say the right thing in the right way, that other person's day is just going to get absolutely thrashed, and they're going to be so happy. You been there? You have seen that? Yeah, I've seen it like 12 times this week. It's been great. Yeah, never mind. I was going to say something I shouldn't. Uh. But sometimes that creeps into our marriages too, doesn't it? Where you just know the right words to set your spouse off. Where you're like, if I just take this dagger and I poke it right here, you're gonna hurt for weeks because you hurt me and I'm out for blood. Been there? See our kids learn it from us sometimes. And then that, Bleeds its way into the church, doesn't it? Bleeds its way into the church. Now, we're blessed to be able to be in an area and in a country where you can choose churches like gas stations sometimes, where if, you know, things don't go your way, you end up going to another church. I'm not saying that's a good thing. But if you're committed to the community that God has put you in, like, look around you. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters, and you know what? They're gonna hurt you. They're gonna hurt you and you're gonna hurt them. And when they do, are you gonna be out for blood? Are you gonna with malice speak words and do things that hurt them and destroy them? Or will you instead bring your heart to the Lord and love them and pray for them? Will you instead invite them into your home and serve them and wash their feet? Will you instead encourage them and write them notes and say, I'm praying for you? Put away malice, put on love. He tells us to put off deceit, hurting others with trickery and falsehood. Right, God's character. The reason why the word of the Lord remains forever is because it's true, amen? Amen. The kingdom of God is built on truth. Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The enemy's kingdom is built on deceit. The enemy's kingdom is built on lies. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He said, you're like your father, the father of lies. Right? When relationships are built on deceit, it's built on sinking sand. And if we're going to learn to love one another, if this world is going to look into the church and say, I want to meet your dad because his kids seem pretty cool, we need to be a place that's full of truth. That speaks the truth in love. That when something is going on with somebody that needs to be confronted, you confront it in love and you say, Brother, I love you, but I need to speak the truth to you. But not living in a deceitful way to think, Hey, everything's all good. We live free of deceit and we speak the truth in love. He says to put off hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy means to, uh, to hide behind a mask. The origins are from the stage, but the stage is a sham. that person in the church that's different on the drive to the church than the person that's actually sitting in the seat in the church. That person that's different on the night before church than the person that sits in the seat in church. Hypocrisy is death. Hypocrisy will bring death to a church. Hypocrisy says, I'm going to tell you I'm living this way, but I'm truly living this way. I'm living behind a mask. You guys in a small group? How many of you guys are in a small group? You guys in a small group? Come on. Let me see them. Let me see them. All right? Now, if somebody doesn't have their hand up, this is your opportunity to invite them to yours. Okay? Yeah, you're busted. I got you. Why do we have small groups? Why do we have this uncommon community? Why do we do it? We do it so we can walk authentically with people in loving relationships. We do it so that we can struggle in the light because listen, brothers and sisters, I struggle just like you. Kai, your pastor, struggles just like you. We struggle. Sometimes we fall. We look up to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and even Jesus had said that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. And so, when you sit in your small group and you're asked the question, hey, what are you struggling with? Or you have a a question that, that comes up about lust, or a question that comes out about self control, or what you watch, and you're like, nope, good there. When all the while you know that you are living in rampant wickedness, you know what that does? You're putting on a mask of hypocrisy that says I'm living this way when you're really not and then the genuine Christian that's sitting next to you sees you as somebody to look up to in the faith and they're like, I will never get there. And you know what? They're right because you're a fraud. No one can be that good. So to live without hypocrisy is to be able to say to a brother, a trusted brother, a trusted sister, I'm struggling here. You know, in my small group, there's a woman who um, was struggling with with an eating disorder for 40 years. She never told anybody. And in the first year of our small group, and and she was a part of a church that just, you had to live right, you know, everything had to be all buttoned up, ship-shaped, as you guys say. Right? Everything had to be all buttoned up she came in and she heard people that were revealing the deepest darkest secrets of their heart and pursuing God with a genuine faith and a genuine love and she confessed it i've been struggling with this eating disorder since i was 12 years old and the lord delivered her of it because she brought what was in the darkness into the light the darkness breeds death but light brings life don't be a hypocrite It's not good for your soul because you're gonna continue living in that wickedness and it's not good for the souls of others because you're not showing a genuine walk. Live in genuineness. He goes on and he talks about envy and he talks about slander, right? When we envy, we're not rejoicing but we're actually uh, lusting after what somebody else has. Proverbs chapter 14 says that, that envy rots the bones. So instead of envy, rejoice and encourage and be satisfied with what God has given you. Give more, pursue less. Scrub more toilets instead of seeking better position. Slander speech that um, that's that's intended to harm. Right at Harvest Rochester, our one of our our uh, tenets of our membership covenant is this: is that if that, that we need to be a a family of God that does not slander one another, because slander is a cancer. And then people begin to slander. People start to see others with, with a different light. And so we say, hey, if somebody comes to you with slander in their tongue, with slander in their mouth, tell them, no, not here. Have you talked to that person yet? No? Okay, we'll go and talk to them. Before I can help you, you've got to try to work this thing out yourself with them. I'm not going to have ears for what you're trying to say to me, right? And so instead of slandering somebody behind their back, we go and we talk about it with one another. We live, in, we love intentionally, and we love protectively, right? All these ways of love are saying, like, we can't, no one just stumbles into love, right? These are choices that we have to make. We have to say, I'm not gonna slander, but I'm going to love. I'm not gonna envy, but I'm going to rejoice. I'm not gonna have malice, but I'm going to serve. I'm not gonna be deceitful, but I'm gonna speak the truth. I'm not gonna be a hypocrite, but I'm gonna be genuine and authentic, We don't just accidentally love one another. These are intentional choices that we make because we're being saved out of a world that just lives naturally and lives the way that it's supposed to go. And deceit, envy, slander, uh, hypocrisy, malice, those things are part of the old man. Put those things off, put on the new man, and that is attractive. That is attractive. Then when people walk into these doors, they say, man, I want to be a part of that. Let me show you my dad. This is who we learned it from, Right? So finally this, if we're going to be the kind of family that God wants us to be, living this family code so that the watching world sees and they desire this and we're loving towards one another, that we are holy for one another, we celebrate our heritage, that we love intentionally and proactively, and finally this, we eat together. We eat together. Look at chapter 2, verses two and three. Now, he's talking again in the context of family. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. One of my favorite times of the day is dinner time because we all gather around together around the table. No one's ever together for breakfast. I'm already out of the house. No one's ever together for lunch. They're at school. I'm at work. But it's dinner time, man. We just sit around and we talk, and there's so many scientifically proven reasons why it's good to have dinner together. Did you know that dinner conversations will, will teach your kids, I almost said learn your kids, yeah, real good English, um, dinner conversations will teach your kids a thousand more uh, uh, hard words than, than, they, than they would learn just by uh, reading books to them. Families that eat together, the kids have higher achievements in sports and homework and art. When families eat together five to seven times a week, they're twice as likely to get A's than families who only eat together twice a week. When you eat together, you actually make better choices. Kids eat more fruit and vegetables and vitamins and there's less obesity and they're more likely to eat well on their own when they grow up. And eating together has actually proved to be better for your mental health. Lower rates of depression, lower rates of suicide, positive view of the future, all come when families actually eat together. Those are scientific studies that were done to show these things. Really cool. And when it comes to the church, I want to encourage us to seek our time that we're eating, to not just eat alone, but to eat together. Look at what he says. Like newborn infants. How many of you guys have been in Christ for more than 10 years? You guys have been in Christ? Don't worry, I'm not tricking you this time. Right, you're like, wait, newborn infants? I'm not a newborn infant. No, 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 he's not saying that you are one. But he's saying, and some, some are, you might be in Christ for 50 years and, and still be an infant in Christ because you haven't grown. But he's saying, as a newborn infant longs for milk, because think about it. When that infant wants milk, what does he do? He screams. Why? Because everything that he needs is found in that milk, that if he doesn't get it, the hunger pains aren't going to go away. If he doesn't get it, the satisfaction is not going to come. If he doesn't get it, he'll eventually die. And instinctively, he knows, I need milk. Edmund Clowney, a commentator on this verse, says, milk is not a luxury for a baby. It's required for life. And in the same way, God's word is not a luxury for you, Christian. It is required for life. And as the baby seeks after it, as the baby screams for it, as the baby hungers for it, so you long for the word of God must feast on the word. And feasting on the word must be our primary way to live our Christian lives because how, we, how will we know the God of the word if we don't know the word of God? This is how he's revealed himself to us. And Peter says, long for the pure spiritual milk. That means milk that hasn't been torn up, milk that hasn't been added. It's, it's, it's what God actually intended you see one of the reasons why I say we need to eat in community like if you just like if you, if your plan of christian growth is me, my bible, a notebook and a tree and nobody else you might get a little jacked up heresy is bred in isolation you see one, like we saw, one of those benefits of eating together is that you eat better. When you eat together in community, whether it's on Sunday mornings or whether it's, it's with your, your fellow believers in your, in your small group, you're going to keep each other away from heresy. You're going to ch- keep each other away from unhealthy patterns of thinking. You're going to keep each other accountable to the pure, unadulterated word of God. That we might grow up into salvation. Again, this isn't some sort of work salvation, but uh, I, I'm a second born, so I got a lot of hand me downs as a kid. You know, jeans that I have to like roll up to my calf. Anybody with me on that one? But eventually, you grow up into it, right? And so he's saying that the way that you grow up into your salvation, the way that you understand it, the way that you know it, the way that you become uh, deeply aware of what God has intended for you is by being in his word and spending time in his word. And look what he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That's what my brother read before he introduced me today. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Edmund Clowney again said this, that the word of the Lord constantly presents the Lord of the word. You cannot divorce the word from the Lord. Rejecting the word is rejecting the Lord. And see, if we're a family that eats together, when you spend time in the word and you are strengthened in your faith and you grow in your faith, You are strengthening the faith of others because as you spend time with Jesus, as you spend time in his word, you're able to help others along in the word. You're able to help others along into what they know. But look, if you're not, what do they say about a chain that it's only as strong as its weakest link, right? That if you are somebody who just looks at the word of God as optional, if you are somebody who looks at the word of God as a choice, you look at something, you look at the word of God and you're like, nah, not today. You're a prime target for the enemy. Because a lack of fellowship with God is going to lead you to a lack of love. It's going to lead you to a lack of holiness. It's going to lead you to indifference to before the Lord. Your worship on Sunday mornings will not even be a quarter of what they could be. Because you're just here for the show. You're not here to worship the God that you have met in his word. He says, if indeed you have tasted that he is good. Have you tasted that? Have you tasted the forgiveness of your sins in Jesus Christ? How did you find out about it? Through the word of God. Have you tasted of the glory of the resurrection? Have you tasted of the glory of the return of Jesus Christ that he says if you just endure a little while longer, if you endure a little while, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take you to the place where there is no more tears, where there is no more death, where there is no more sorrow, where there is no more pain. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? We only find that in the word of God. Have you tasted of the love of Jesus Christ for you? That he was crucified on the cross in Calvary? and that your sins were put on him, and his righteousness was put on you. Have you rejoiced in that? You only have because you found it in the word of God. So let's eat together, brothers and sisters. Let's feast on the Lord and his word. Our family code. We eat together. We love intentionally and proactively. We're holy for one another. We celebrate our heritage. And let me remind you that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let's be the family that God intended us to be. Let's live according to what God has called us to live so that others might come in and we can point and say, let me introduce you to the dad who made us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity that you've given us to dive into your word this morning. We thank you, God, that your word is eternal, imperishable, that your word is light and life, that by your word we're saved, that by your word we're sanctified, that by your word we're pointed to you. And know, God, I pray for this church. I pray for Harvest Muskoka. I pray for Harvest Rochester. Father, I pray that you would bind our hearts together in this common grace. Lord, that we would be communities of people who live according to what you have said, who live according to your love for us, who live according to, to the love that you have commanded us to have for one another so that a watching, dying and lost world may see the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that their hearts might long for it and that we might point them to the way to the truth to the life to Jesus Christ. Father our hearts are set on you teach us to live as you have called us it's in Jesus name we pray Amen.